I Read Comics, Episode 1. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. In 1985, I walked into the Forbidden Planet science fiction megastore in New York City, I was with some friends, and I think I went there specifically to look for a Voltron figure, or maybe it was a Godzilla figure, I can't remember. I do know that I was not interested in buying comics, because at that time, the comics that Marvel and DC were putting out were crap. Nobody wanted to buy them. They were just bad. I had been reading comics my whole life, and I had quite a collection, I still have quite a collection, of Silver Age Marvel, my favorites, plus a lot of DC stuff. But I lost interest in it somewhere along the way, probably in the mid to late 70s, because they just weren't interesting anymore. And I couldn't find anything to replace them, so I stopped reading comics. So there I was in Forbidden Planet, looking at all the cool stuff that they had, and I walked past a display that had a comic that I had never seen before, and it was called Love and Rockets. And they had a display that had probably eight or ten different issues on it, and I looked at it and I thought, I know the band called Love and Rockets, but what is this? So I picked up a couple issues and I looked at them, and it was black and white, and it wasn't about superheroes, and there were lots of women in it, and it was pretty darn cool. And I looked at it and I thought, okay, I'm either going to buy all these issues right now or I'm not going to buy any of them. And because we were walking around New York and I didn't feel like carrying stuff all over the place up and down Manhattan, I didn't buy any of them. And later, after I moved to California, a friend of mine gave me issues 1 through 20 of Love and Rockets, which was an incredible gift. It was from her own personal collection because she was moving and couldn't take them with her. And I read them all straight through because they were so compelling and so good. And that was how I got back into comics. And after that, I started going to the comic book store and finding all kinds of really interesting things. Not Marvel, not DC, but interesting stuff from Fantagraphics and local stuff, too. I started picking up Optic Nerve. I started looking at things like Bitchy Bitch. And I realized that there was this whole other world of comics that I had never realized was around and had only started to come back. Um, from the independent stuff in the 60s at that point. And from there on out, I started reading comics and I started buying comics, and it's been that way ever since. I want to use this podcast to talk about comics that I like, that I think are interesting, whether they're new or whether they're old. This isn't meant to keep you up to date on the latest releases that are coming out, because there are plenty of other great podcasts that already do that, and you don't need to hear it again. 
But this is more like the kind of thing you might find, oh, in the New York Review of Books, where somebody gets really in-depth about something that they enjoy, that makes sense to them, that's good, that they want to share. So that's what I'll be talking about, and it will cover a whole range of things from old Marvel, old DC, current things that are out by Fantagraphics, um, things that we get sent at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, where I often review comic books, and I'll provide links to those things. And even animation on TV, because I love animation, and I love to watch what's on TV. I love to watch what's in the movies as well. So I'll just be talking about things that matter to me, and hopefully, if I talk about them enough and you check them out, they'll matter to you too. So to start things off with a bang, I'm going to talk about the very first manga I've ever read, and it's called Only the Ring Finger Knows. The reason I'm reading this was because my fabulous um, editorial diva over at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, Ginger Meyerson, thought that I needed to read this, so she sent me a copy because she had read it and fell in love with it. And in fact, she wrote a really great review of it over there, and I'm going to read from that a little bit later on. Um, so I got this book, and I kind of sort of knew what it was about, but not really, and then I read it, and I've read it a whole bunch of times since then. So just so in case you don't know what manga is, it's Japanese. It's beautiful art with... Um, lots of words that are sometimes thought and sometimes dialogue and it's usually in this case it's manga about these young boys that fall in love with each other and in some of the other types of manga that's called yaoi it's actually about young boys having sex with each other and since I really like gay porn that doesn't bother me at all but it might bother you so this book is not about sex. This is about love, and it's about these boys in a Japanese high school who are having uh, problems admitting their true feelings to each other, just like everybody does in high school. So it's nice to see that it's the same in high school, whether you live in America or whether you live in Japan. It's always the same. So our two protagonists are Wataru Fuji, who is the younger of the two boys, and then there's Yuichi Kazuki, who is the older and more dominant of our lovely couple and the book is just about how they try to get together and the things that happen the art is really really interesting and some of this to me was a little bit familiar because there are definitely um, there's a tradition in Japanese comics that goes back to if you remember what Speed Racer looks like where the characters look really cartoonish but contrasted against that are these really interesting well-drawn beautiful boys who look like elves. I mean, they don't even look like girls. They look like elves. They have pointed faces. They come down into a, a sort of a perfect heart point in their chins and huge eyes and um, sort of slanty eyebrows and this beautiful hair that, that just looks great. And their bodies are very tall and thin and graceful. They have beautiful fingers. This book is about... Um, I don't know if this is actually true or not, but how um, boys and girls in uh, high school trade rings and wear rings as symbols of who they're friends with or who they like or who they're sleeping with. So that's why it's called Only the Ring Finger Nose. So there's a lot of drawings of hands, and the hands are just done really beautifully. Um, just to let you know where this book comes from before I get any more deeply into it, it's published by Digital Manga, who takes these Japanese things and translates them into English and then publishes them. And uh, they're great, great books. Books. They're done in the traditional manga style or traditional Japanese style, which is, you would think that they were back to front to the Western reader. And they have actually a little um, 
guide in the front that tells you how to read them so you don't get confused. Even with the guide, though, it's really confusing the first couple times you go through it because even though the panels sort of read from right to left, not really, and the um, delineation between what they're saying and what they're thinking is not always clear. And I'm not sure if that's just a convention issue or whether you're supposed to be confused about what people are actually saying and what people are thinking. So um, it kind of adds to the mystique of something like this because you can read it several times and finally go, oh, I get that scene. I didn't get that the first 16 times I read it. So the author um, is Satoru Kanagi, who is someone who has apparently um, written lots and lots of this stuff. And these comics, in fact, were taken from novels, which haven't been translated into English. And at the end of this, um, and on the website, iReadComics.blogspot.com, I'm going to put in a link to a petition asking somebody, please, to God, translate these novels so we can find out how close they are to what happens in the, the manga comic and uh, what happens afterwards, because apparently the story of these two boys goes on. And the artist here is Hotaru Odegiri, um, a woman who did just an excellent, excellent job of drawing this. So um, it's in English. There are sound effects in Japanese. The English is kind of a cross between, I'll say it again, Speed Racer and uh, Love and Rockets because some of it is very casual, almost slangy uh, American talk. And then there are other parts of it where it is just so Japanese you can't even believe it with people talking about losing face and talking about how uh, someone refusing a present is an insult to the present, which is just so wacky. <laughs> um there's a lot of angst in here because it's high school, and that's sort of what you would expect. But it's well done. It's not too pitiful, and uh, there's some humor to lighten it, definitely. And you really do feel for these two guys and what they're going through. Um, I'll give you a little bit of what Ginger had to say about it because I really love her plot synopsis. Um, this is what she says. Here's the plot synopsis. Quote, he hates me. He loves me. He doesn't love me. He's a guy. I'm a guy. I hate him. I love him. He loves someone else. I can't eat. I can't sleep. How am I ever going to get over this and get into Tokyo University? Oh, wait. Maybe he, uh, ah. So that's pretty much the way it goes. Um, it, again, I don't know if this is a translation thing or what, but, um, the fact that these are two guys who are falling in love with each other doesn't seem to really freak anybody out very much. A lot of the plot of the book revolves around um, Wataru not knowing how Yuichi feels about him. But it's it's strangely done. It's not like I think it would be in American high schools where you'd get the shit kicked out of you in a lot of places if you even mentioned, like, looked like you were maybe emotionally interested in another guy. It's not like that at all. And Wataru's sister, when she finds out that he's in love with Yuichi, is like, oh, isn't that great? You're in love with him. How wonderful. That's weird. But good. I'm glad. I'm glad it's like that. But it is kind of weird. Um, so, you know, this happens and nobody seems to think very much of it. And I guess that's okay. I'm not sure if that means that these kinds of relationships are okay while these men are young, while they're in high school, and that once they grow up and go to college, it's kind of like, oh, I got over my experimental phase, and now I'm going to get married and have kids and, you know, be in uh, be a businessman. I don't know. It would be great to know that, 
Um, and I wonder if it's the same for girls, whether it's okay when you're in high school to be in love with another girl and experiment, whether it's romantically or sexually. And then later on, you just say, well, I did that. And now I'm going to get married and have lots of kids and maybe be a businesswoman. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. And I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, so the, the main thing about this book that I wanted to talk about, though, is the relationship of Yuichi, who is the older, more dominant boy, to Wataru, the younger, really feminine-looking guy. Um, if it's possible for ultra-feminine guys to look even more feminine, that's Wataru. He's kind of short. He's really skinny. He has um, gigantic eyes and black hair that sort of falls down in his face and very, very delicate fingers. Um, so what I really want to know is why is Yuichi Kazuki so mean? And that could be a Japanese country and Western song. But he is really mean, and I, I don't really understand it. Um, so as I was saying, the plot kind of turns on whether um, Yuichi is going to return Wataru's feelings. And Wataru isn't even sure that Yuichi can tolerate him, because every time he runs into Yuichi, Yuichi is so mean to him. And it's not even the kind of mean where it's just because he's an upperclassman. He's really, really mean. Um, we find out later, partly he's mean. He says he's mean because he's trying to cover up his true feelings. I don't want to give away the whole ending to the book. Um, but he, that's, that's his excuse for how mean he is. But I got to say, if anybody was that mean to me... <laughs> As much as I was in love with them, I would have second, third, and maybe fourth thoughts about whether I really wanted to be mooning over somebody who's that mean. So I actually went through this. This is how obsessive I can be and made a list of all the really mean things that he did and, and said. So what's also interesting about his meanness is that it's so targeted toward the very thing that I guess he's trying to avoid thinking about. So the whole plot turns on the rings that Wataru and Yuichi have. It turns out that they have the same rings. And this is cause for concern because if they have the same rings, it could mean that they're paired with each other. And Wataru basically spends the whole book trying to convince himself that that's not really what's going on here. Anyway, um, so he and Yuichi have some confrontations about the fact that they're wearing the same rings. And Yuichi says to him, it's creepy being paired up with a guy. So there he goes insulting Wataru, but himself as well. Um, he goes even further by insulting what Wataru's physical characteristics. He looks at Wataru, who's holding a big package, and says, carrying that big package makes you look even smaller. Of course, he's attracted to Wataru because he is smaller, because he's more like a girl. Um, and he has to pick on that. Um, and then he says also that the wrapping paper on the package, which happens to have flowers on it, he says, the floral gift wrapping is a nice feminine touch. So now, again, he's trying to insult the thing that he finds so appealing. And then he says to Wataru, are you sure you aren't funny that way? <laughs> So there you go. There's the pot calling the kettle gay. And then it gets almost a little sociopathic, in my opinion. There's a scene where the two of them are very, they're standing in a room together, and Yuichi is kind of leaning over him. He's got his arm against the wall. He's really, really close, and he murmurs his name, Wataru's name, in his ear in a very seductive way. And then Wataru, who's totally freaked out by this, 
is like, what are you doing? And Yuichi says, oh, I just wanted to see how you would react. What, did you think I was going to kiss you or something? Come on, that's really mean. It's a total mind fuck. He gets, Yuichi gets this guy all worked up. He comes on to him and then he says, oh, it didn't happen. I didn't have any such intention. You're just making that up. That is sociopathic. The last straw comes when Yuichi finally kisses him. It's a wonderfully drawn kiss. Really, really sexy, wonderful kiss. And Wataru, again, completely reasonable, pushes him away because he thinks it's a joke. Why is this guy who's been so mean to me actually kissing me? And then Yuichi kind of decides that if he can't have Wataru, who's just rejected him, he'll date his little sister and says, she's pretty cute and I like him stubborn. And on top of that, the fact that she looks like you, it sounds like fun. So Wataru hits him which I would have done 60 pages ago. And really, it's the only thing that shuts Yuichi up. So the thing that I'm left wondering at the end of the book is, if they're going to have a relationship, is Yuichi going to be this mean through their whole relationship? Is love going to change him? Or is he still going to be this kind of self-centered mean guy? And there's one panel at the end that kind of suggests that he's still kind of mean. Um, I'm not sure about that, and maybe that's what Wataru really wants, I don't know. But it's an interesting question, and I don't know that it gets resolved one way or the other. Um, maybe you're not supposed to know. I don't know if it gets resolved in the novels, because as I said, the novels aren't available in English, and my Japanese is not good enough to read them. But there is a petition that you can sign to help get them translated into English, so we can find out what the hell happens with these guys. So, Only the Ring Finger knows a great introduction to manga. I'm really looking forward to reading some more of it, and maybe some more of the overtly pornographic stuff, too. So we'll, we'll see what happens. The next thing on my list is the something old part, and this is old. It's old because these comics came out in the 70s. It's old because this book came out a couple of years ago, and I'm just getting around to buying it. You know, I've been busy. And this is from Marvel, The Chronicles of Conan, and what I've got in my hands is Volume 1, because I just got it. This was published by Dark Horse. Um, they went back and took, uh, they collected up issues of Conan the Barbarian, as published by Marvel in the early 70s, and put them into these nice books. There are, I think, five volumes that collect the stuff by Barry Smith, um, later Barry Windsor Smith, and this one has um, issues 1 through 8. So I wanted to get it because I've been a huge, huge fan of Conan since the comics originally came out. I was actually a Conan fan before that, and I read all the books by Robert E. Howard, and I was really happy to see Marvel do what they did with him. Um, and Barry Smith could not have been a better choice for this. So I wanted to just talk about what a great book this is. Um, this particular book, of course, is just the beginning, and as soon as I finished it, I immediately wanted the next one. And I felt like an idiot for only buying one at a time. So the others are on their way, and I'll probably end up talking about those as well. This one has uh, one of the best stories, I think, in it, um, although I know some are better known, and that's Tower of the Elephant, which was an actual Robert E. Howard story that, that got adapted. Um, but I want to talk especially about the art in here, because that's really the main attraction. The big deal about Barry Smith drawing this was that previously... The books that came out with the collected Conan stories in them had these very, um, very well-known now covers by Frank Frazetta. 
in which Conan was portrayed um, a mature Conan for the most part. So he was pretty mean looking. He was huge, had this as described by Howard Long black hair. And he was really a mean looking kind of guy. When you look at these comics and you see the way Barry Smith has drawn him, especially a couple of panels um, later on, and I'm actually going to scan one and put it up so you can see exactly what I'm talking about, but at the end of Devil Wings over Shadazar, which is uh, one of the, the later ones here, you know, he's hot. He is so good looking. He looks like a model. He's this tall, muscular guy, but he's not a bulky kind of guy. He's very lithe, and he's always talked about as moving like a panther really softly. He's got this long black hair and blue eyes and these great big pouty lips. He is so hot. I can't believe that, that they put this through. And they certainly weren't drawing it for girls, because I don't think any girls were buying comic books at that time, except maybe me and a couple other ones. But, man... Conan is so hot, and you know, that kind of changed later on. He stayed pretty much the same in looks when Barry Smith was drawing him, and then later when the other artists took over, you know, they showed a, a more mature Conan, and he got uh, kind of more square looking. The way Barry Smith draws him, he's very slender and angular, and he's got these really high cheekbones that contrast really well with the with the big lips. Um, but I, I just have to point that out because I haven't actually seen anybody else say that about him, that Conan looks like a model. And believe me, that's not a bad thing here. Um, the other stuff that Barry Smith is just so good at is the magic and all of the, the really interesting sorcery elements of this. And I read uh, this, the book that Smith put out called Opus, which talks about his early life and how he got started drawing the Conan books. And um, he continues this discussion in his next book, Opus 2. And apparently around the time that he was drawing Conan, he was having a lot of really weird metaphysical experiences that changed his perceptions about time and space. And I think a lot of that carried through because he clearly has a connection with the magic that is present in almost every story. And he he portrays the magic in the art as part of the landscape of the place where Conan lives, which is supposed to be our world just a really long time ago. But it's not, really. Um, there's t so many things that are just part of the landscape that are clearly supernatural. Um, and maybe the point is that that stuff just isn't around anymore. But it's it's interesting. And in one of the stories, there's a god that he actually encounters and talks to. And gods are present in other places, sometimes in um, sort of an ethereal form and sometimes in a very real form that they're kind of still hanging around even after people don't believe in them any longer. But the, the script writing is really good. Um, Roy Thomas was the writer on this, and he adapted a lot of Howard's stories. Um, he also wrote original stories after they ran out of the Howard stuff. And in some places, you know, the dialogue's really stilted, but in other places, it's really good. And even though Conan talks to himself an awful lot because they have some way to get all the exposition done, um, he does have some really funny things to say. I was just looking at a panel where he's... Um, comforting this woman who's trying to save him um, and they're about to get it on and uh, this magician pops up and says hey let go of her I'm going to kill you <laughs> and when faced with this guy who has flames coming off of his hands and out of his head Conan says do doors mean nothing in this place <laughs> which is just a great reaction it's so funny and they, they put in a lot of that stuff later on um, so this book is great I, I a lot of people had 
criticized the way Smith drew these first, you know, like one through ten, basically, as not knowing how to draw. And you know what? That's bullshit. Of course he knew how to draw. Some of it is better than others. And yeah, a lot of it is really derivative of Jack Kirby. But you know what? That's really not a bad thing. Could be a lot worse. Could be derivative of people who couldn't draw. So I say, yeah, okay, be derivative of Jack Kirby. Not a bad starting place. But, you know, the art is pretty good. Um, the only criticisms I have are that he didn't draw women all that well till later on, till he got to the Red Sonia stuff, and then I liked his women a lot better. So I'm not crazy about the way he draws women. But I love the way he draws Conan, that's for sure. So this is definitely a book worth picking up if you're a fan of Conan. And for me, it's a real pleasure to be able to actually read the stories again, because, of course, my comic books are all packed up. They're all boarded and bagged, and I'm terrified to actually take them out of the bags in case they start falling apart or I get finger oil on them or something. So, you know, I'm never going to read them again. I'll just take out Conan number one and gaze at it longingly. and Then I'll pull out this book so I can actually read the story. So, yeah. A good purchase. Really glad I bought this, and kudos to Dark Horse for doing it. Oh, I should say that I actually went to the Dark Horse site and I looked at the new run of Conan, which they've started putting out, I guess, about two years ago. And, you know, not a big fan, not really a fan of the way they've drawn him. Maybe I was just corrupted by the way Barry Smith drew him and figuring, you know, nobody else can do it like he can. But um, I understand the difference between this magical, ornate world that Smith drew and the very gritty, realistic tone of the the Howard stories and how they wanted to portray that a little bit better. But I don't know. I just like this better. And maybe that's because I'm a girl. The last thing I want to talk about just briefly is, isn't really a comic, it's a publisher, which is um, Alternative Comics. And Alternative Comics was a publisher that we really hadn't known about much, except when we went to Comic-Con last year, um, they were there. Specifically, Jeff Mason was there, who is the publisher. And we saw some of his books, and we liked them. And then during the year, um, Jeff put out a call saying, you know what, if you guys would buy some comics, it would really help us out, like it would help us not to go bankrupt. And people came to the rescue, and I bought a bunch of stuff that I was really happy with. And I ran into Jeff again at Ape this year when we were there. And he was so nice. He gave me a whole bunch stuff which we've since reviewed at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society Journal online and they are just great um, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about one of the books that I read and I'm going to write up a review of and then some of the other things that they publish um, they do a lot of graphic novels and they also do collections of comics that had also uh, been published previously in weeklies or, or as uh, daily strips and they publish a lot of women, which I think is really great. And they publish some people that you might have heard of before, too, like James Kachalka, who's actually fairly famous at this point. Um, I read a book called Subway Series by Leela Corman, which I reviewed and liked a lot. I thought it was great. It was very much um, not a coming-of-age story, but it was a slice of life from a, a girl's point of view, and I thought that that was really interesting. Um, they have... Uh, other collections that we had also written about recently, like um, Adam Sachs' uh, Salmon Doubts, which was a really neat way of telling a story about society and individuals in that society, but it's all with fish, <laughs> which is a really cool thing. Um, the book that I got that I'm going to write about soon is called Strange Day, and that is an original book 
That's by uh, Damon Hurd, who wrote it, and Tatiana Gill, who did the art for it. And it's the story of one day, um, two teenagers who meet while they're trying to buy the new Cure album, and it turns out they have everything in common, and they spend the rest of the day together talking to each other, just getting to know each other. And it's not an opposites attract story, but it is a story of two kids who don't really have a lot of friends and find something special in each other. It's not that they fall in love with each other right away, but maybe they do, and that's kind of left up to you, the reader, to find out what's going to happen. Um, It's the kind of story where, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, wow, I wish that had really happened to me in high school, because I don't know that it does happen to that many people, but I think the message you take away from it is that you should be open, because you can have experiences like that, and if you can let yourself be open to talking to somebody that you might not talk to otherwise, it might be the person that you've been waiting to meet and meet up with and have everything in common with. So I like that a lot, and I like the art very much. Um, all black and white, really interesting line drawings, really interesting locations. There's a abandoned school, and there's a lighthouse, and there's an ocean, and there's a diner, and there's a lot of cool stuff. I like that book a lot. So I encourage you to support your indie folks out there, and Alternative Comics is one of them. Their books are really nice. They're really high quality as well, got to say. Beautiful paper, beautiful covers, really nicely bound. Take them with you anywhere, and they look great. Bright, bright colors on the covers. We like Alternative Comics, and we support them put in a link so go go and buy their books i think that's it for this time next time i'll be back talking about some other stuff uh including another manga that i have an awful lot to say and some other new things and some other old things so thanks very much for listening i'll be back again with the point of view of a girl a girl who reads comics (laughs) 